This episode is brought to you by The Wellness Company and more specifically, their Spike Support Formula. This product is a revolutionary, you guys. I was introduced to The Wellness Company Spike Support from my friend Kid Carson and was immediately interested as I myself have been deep diving into the literature of COVID spike proteins, which is the legacy of the COVID virus and the vaccines, and it's linked to all kinds of long haul issues. And people want to know, how the heck do I get this out of my body and protect myself moving forward? Well, the all-natural solution that I have been using is Spike Support. The Spike Support formula is a unique combination of targeted ingredients researched to block and dissolve COVID spike protein in the bloodstream. So whether you got the shot, you're watching the research pour in about the vaccine shedding, or you had a rough go with COVID, spike protein is a serious concern. And while we won't know the true extent of the damage for years, there is something you can do now to protect yourself and keep you and your family well. Hundreds of people, vaccinated or not, have reported better mental clarity, increased energy levels, and many more positive outcomes from the spike support formula. Take spike support daily to combat spike proteins and get back to that pre-COVID feeling. Go to twc.health forward slash unfiltered and use code unfiltered to save 10% at checkout. That's twc.health forward slash unfiltered code unfiltered for 10% off. Hello everyone. You're listening to Elisa Unfiltered Living Life Out Loud, the podcast. My name is Elisa curry and I'm here today speaking from the heart to inspire and motivate you to be your best self. There is so much more to life than the nine to five daily grind. And I want to share all of my secrets with you. So let's get started. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 174 of the Elisa Unfiltered Podcast. My name is Elisa, and today it is Wednesday, December 20th, December 20th. Basically, it's the winter solstice. And yes, I know that there's one more day, but the winter solstice, fun fact, is a really powerful time. It's a really powerful day. It's a powerful time of year, spiritually and energetically, December 21st is technically the solstice. And it's the day that um, the sun has a reversal of its ebbing in the sky. Okay. In ancient times, it was seen as a symbolic death and rebirth of the sun, right? Or the sun gods, if you will. And it's, it, it's kind of It's a special day for me. I look forward to the 21st because it means that the days are now getting longer. That's kind of how, as when I was a kid, how I put it together. But the energy that I've felt or I've connected to in recent years is the energy and sense of hope. Everything's possible coming in the coming months. And yes, Winter is a time for full hibernation energetically up here in Canada. Anyways, the days are super short and um, it will be a while before we really start to see those longer days and feel the heat of the spring. But in those beginning stages of the rebirth, that's where we're very vulnerable. It's rebirth season, the cycle. It's a time to rest in a very serious way. That might be hard for people to hear and to really practice and put into their day-to-day lives. Uh, Honestly, right now, your work is to rest. It's to plan. It's to commit to what's to come and dream up your potential. All right. Anyways, happy winter solstice. This isn't a winter solstice podcast. Don't worry. Um, if If you haven't taken time, however, to go outside and really connect to the stars. The stars come out at, you know, four o'clock here, <laughs> 4 p.m. here in Canada, 4.30. Go and find yourself a spot and just look up. Try and get away from the city lights as much as possible. I mean, we're pretty um, spoiled here out in the country. And of course, my connection to the stars has just exploded over the last three, four years uh, as I go out, especially this time of year. It's fantastic. and look out at the night, take a breath, take in some of that awe of the universe. It's a really powerful thing. 
Anyhow, okay, moving on. So today the podcast is part two of the Mind Detox series that I'm creating here. The This will be a solo episode, of course. Part one was the vision. Okay, so part one, I go into the why I'm doing this, what the new way forward is for people who are looking to silence the noise and to heal and lead sovereign lives, have mental freedom, detox our mind and get mental freedom. So I talk about the why. And yes, this new way has been building for years. And right now it is right here at the surface. So if you haven't listened to part one, go ahead and, and do that. And meet us back here. So today is about perspective shifts. Today is about, yeah, but not like a boring perspective shift. Okay. Like people are like, me, I don't need perspective. I don't need perspective shifts, <laughs> which I totally understand. This is more of like the building into my personal why. And to give you some context, my personal mind detox story began when I was 30. All right. I had one goal when I was 30. <laughs> I had one goal when I turned 30. I had I was recently divorced. When I was 26 to 29, I was really struggling with my weight. I was in the 230 category, 230 pounds, roughly on my uh, five foot seven frame. My goal, my goal when I turned 30 was to be jacked and tanned. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be jacked and tanned. <laughs> um I was okay being a divorced 30-year-old, but I didn't, I wasn't okay being a divorced overweight 30-year-old. So I decided to get into the best shape of my life, which led to me competing in Ironman, running seven marathons, and really getting powerful in my body and, and, and redefining what that meant. Remember, I was a performance athlete. I skied for Canada for eight years, but it was like training with a purpose to be the best skier. It was training hard based on what other people told me to do. I didn't get to decide how I wanted to, to train. Okay. So this was like a, a really interesting time for me as I figured out how I wanted to be healthy and in shape. I, I had a, like when I, when I, when I was 29, when I was about to turn 30, I mean, I had a very specific number I wanted to see on the scale. I was going for it. I put my mind to it and I did it. I did it. However, I didn't do it in the same way that I had been trying to lose weight, trying to build confidence, trying to look good, feel good in my body. I didn't do it the same way. And we're going to get into the specifics of that in the next episode, because my personal transformation and how I applied the beginning stages of what I call intuitive awareness into my real, into my real life is really cool. And that's where we're going to focus today on, on those beginning stages. So what I mean by that, again, I'm going to go into, into more detail next episode about my personal uh, weight loss transformation, getting out of divorce, like what actually happened, but and what made it different, unlike all the other attempts that I, I had made to try to lose weight and get fit and become this health machine, <laughs> okay? But unlike those times, unlike those times that I had gone all in on myself before, because I've gone all in on myself and I did lose weight and then I gained it back. I did get fit and then I stopped being fit. I did reach goals and then I let them slide. So unlike those times, because I didn't want to take that road again, feeling energized, feeling the power I had in my legs, you know, like when you, when you are power when you're building strength in your legs. For those people that are turning to weights and they're starting to put some meat on your meat suit, when you start lifting heavier and heavier and you run up the stairs and you feel the power in your legs, it's like, boom, oh, I love that feeling. <laughs> Unlike all the other times where I was trying to build all of that, and at age 29, going on 30, something dramatic shifted in my brain. And I, I couldn't quite put a name to it. I couldn't quite 
capture it in a pill. I couldn't quite capture it in one sentence. It was a life altering perspective shift on my life, on my beliefs, on my body, on everything. And I speak about this shift all the time on social media. I'm writing about it in my book. Yep, that's coming. And we'll scream it nonstop on this podcast and everywhere until I die because our minds are incredibly powerful. Our mind, your mind is incredibly powerful. And we have lost our ability to see and utilize it. You have lost it as well to discern, to think critically, to zoom out and detach from narratives. It's possible that you're able to do that in certain areas of your life, but overall humanity, our culture, we are being distracted. We are being led to believe so we don't know what's best for ourselves. Someone else knows what's best, how to keep us safer than we know how to keep ourselves safe. Okay. And it's my mission to change that in the world and help women remember and feel the power of their minds. Just like that power surge I just spoke about running up the stairs. We can feel that in our bodies. We can feel when we have energy versus not energy, but our mind gets fuzzy. It's hard to really discern where we need to detox in our mind and how we do that. And of course, learning all of this came at a very inconvenient, very stressful time. I'm just going to take a sip of coffee here. Hold on. Mm. It's early morning here on this beautiful Wednesday. Uh, and today I want to share those first experiences with you so that you can connect the dots and see the work from a different perspective and understand what we're really freaking talking about here. And I think it's important to start by acknowledging that my mind at the time going through this in my late 20s was loaded with toxic toxicity, toxic thoughts. I was in a serious need for a mind detox. But of course, I never in a million years would have would have admitted that. There's no chance in hell <laughs> that I would ever admit that I had toxic thoughts. I would let that idea, I would bury that idea so quickly, okay? And when I left sport, I, I was arguably at the lowest point in my life. So when we are low, denying the idea that our thoughts might be toxic and what we have in, what we're holding in our minds, what's really right behind our face, that power surge that's controlling things, that might not be as healthy as we think we might be wearing rose-colored glasses, right? So that we can protect ourselves and protect our confidence, right? I was at the lowest point in my life and I did not think I was toxic. And so to face the world, what I started doing was I put on the mask. I put on a brave face. I embraced fake it till you make it like a champion, <laughs> And thus, my quest to prove myself, to get the validation from everyone else, for everyone to see me, you know, that's that was my strategy. I didn't see myself. All right. I, I And subconsciously, I just constantly tried to posture and prove. And this is where things got really interesting for me in my life. Really interesting. I mean, I... <laughs> not interesting. I mean, intense and horrible and resistant and, and really difficult. <laughs> you know, when, you know, when something, uh, bad happens, all right. Or when you want something to happen so badly and it just doesn't. And so it feels crappy in your body. You never seem to get to the destination you want to go. You always have this disappointment. Some something always sorts of sort of ruins your moment or the day or steals your thunder. Yeah, I lived there for years, for uh, several years of my career as a high performance coach, specifically the first two years of coaching. When I when I left competing for Canada, I gained a bunch of weight. I got in, myself into a really horrible situation personal in my personal life and in my career in my finances a lot of bad things were happening and those first 2 years of high performance coaching were a humongous uh TSN turning point if you will <laughs> in my sporting career 
The, and here's the thing I didn't know back then. Those barriers, those roadblocks, that resistance, all of that was a giant sign that I was out of alignment, that I was trying to force things, that I believed manifesting was to control others because, of course, I was out of control. I didn't know that. Uh, I, I just felt as though I I needed everyone to do what I said or else, right? My energy, my ideas, my thoughts, my beliefs, my goals were not in flow. I was stuck in fear, fear of not being accepted, fear of not being seen successful. I lived in fear that people would see me as a failure for not making the Olympics. And even though I didn't want to be afraid, I pretended that I wasn't afraid. I subconsciously and consciously, because a lot of those decisions I made in good conscience, (laughs) I was creating and attracting this resistance. When we are in alignment, when we flow, when we go with the flow, when our energy is in alignment, when our goals, when our vision is clear, we don't get that. And I'm going to get into that in a bit. So here is what happened. (laughs) Coffee time. My first year of coaching, provincial sport was an absolute gong show. So I left competing. I I went straight into provincial coaching. I, I was hired by Ontario Freestyle. They put me through all of my training. I was working very closely with some of the greatest minds in sport. And I had a ton of opportunity to really expand my knowledge of the sport. Instead, I came up with a chip on my shoulder and I said, you know, I'm a national team athlete. I've won a world cup. I am national champion twice. I, I'm really good at this. I know what I'm doing. I know how to become super freaking good at sport. And So I developed this like chip on my shoulder saying, I don't need to learn from you guys. I'm the one doing it. Look, I am the thing that you're trying to coach people. I know what to do. So that was my attitude that I knew everything. And it was really the rudest awakening of all time, because when you become responsible for eight, 10 athletes from various Um, economic backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, sporting backgrounds, talent, um, natural talent versus hard work. When you start to, um, I I, I did not have a clue that people come from different places. I assumed in my arrogance and in my pain that I had the answer to everyone and they had to follow this one model, the one model. Look at how the world is, is, is strategized, right? Everyone has to do it this way or else. That was me. It's a, it's a tyrant tyranny sort of, I was sort of like this militant leader. So I would stand on the top, looking down at the team and saying, do what I say, don't do what I do. Cause of course I was gaining so much weight at that time. I was I was 200 and over 220 pounds, at least 220, 230. Okay. Screaming my finger, eating all of the shittiest food ever binge drinking every single night. Okay. And I was like dictating, pointing the finger at these kids to do what I say, because I know what's best for them. Well, needless to say that approach sort of crashed and burned. I almost got fired. I immediately, all of the parents put a ton of restrictions on me. Kids were quitting the program left, right, and center. And we somehow, um, and of course I blamed all them. I'm like, fine, you want to leave? You're not cut out for this. Screw you. Okay. That was my attitude. (laughs) Um, I laugh because it's just so funny. I can't believe it was like that, but I was, and that's, that's where I was. And that was my reality. I, the lens from which I saw the world, that's what it was. And um, I'm sorry for everyone listening. If your coach might be at that time, because woo, man, I was a wounded 
a wounded little child. Um, so the second year that I was coaching Ontario Freestyle, so this is my second year into coaching. I had gone through quite a few, um, I, I had already been a year and a half into all of my teaching. So I was coaching full-time and learning full-time, um, going through my national coaching certification program, which I did over the a course of, I think, five years, four years. And we, we, Ontario Freestyle got this amazing grant through the Quest for Gold um, lottery. So they started a lottery system and the proceeds went towards amateur sport, amateur sport. This was um, leading into the 2010 Olympics. They got a bunch of funding and so amateur sport and Ontario Freestyle was uh, in a lottery uh, literally selected as one of the sports that would that would gain quite a bit of um, money from this initiative, which was fantastic. So we were really stoked because it's $30,000 a year per athlete to compete. This is, we're, we're high stakes. This is a high stakes, high performance sport. Okay. Kids are paying 20 to 30,000, depending on how many events they go to in a year, in a year, it is an elite high stakes sport. Okay. So this funding was awesome. And part of the funding was to work with a sports psychologist. And of course, the second I heard that, I was like, yes, these kids need sports psychology more than anyone. They suck. They don't know. <laughs> like that's where I went. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I was at a meeting sitting with these heads of, of the, um, of the quest for gold and the high performance sport committee with the national sports center of Ontario. And they were like, Oh, Oh no, no, no. This initiative is not for the athletes. This is for you, the coach. We are going to put, um, assign a sports psychologist to work with you so that you can disseminate that information. You're the one traveling with the team 230 days a year. We don't have a budget to have our sports psychologist travel with you or meet individually for one hour once or twice with all 10 athletes. We want him to meet with you 20 times throughout the year and you are going to start to descend. And I was like, I don't need, my immediate response was, I don't need this what? They need this. I don't need this. I was super resistant. Again, there was no flow. I immediately put like a hand in front and I was like, oh my God. But the, <laughs> the heads of the National Sports Center Ontario were like, you're doing this. And I was like, oh my God, they don't know how superior I am to everyone. Whoa. So it's really interesting. So <laughs> I go into this first meeting, this hot head, like it's almost embarrassing, but whatever. Um, I met with Dr. Kelly Dell. So Kelly Dell was this incredible uh, sports psychologist. He, he, I mean, we've become really good friends ever since that first meeting, but that first meeting I walk in and I, and I'm just like, thinking I'm hot shit. And I didn't want to be there. He for sure knew I didn't want to be there. And within five minutes of talking to this person, like I literally can't walked into that meeting thinking this is so stupid. I'm not going to learn anything. I've worked with sports psychologists in the past. I mean, we had tons of them on the national team I, for eight years. I was working with a psychiatrist at the time as well. I was, you know, I didn't need this is what I had decided. And I came into that meeting with that mentality. So within five minutes of chatting with him, I was like, oh, fuck, this guy is very cool. He is very interesting. And I immediately like started to dissolve the idea that I don't need this. It was, it was, it was like a miracle. Um, <laughs> And I love the divine timing. I love the concept of you meet certain people at the right time. And this was honestly like the perfect time for me to meet Kelly. He, again, blew me out of the water. And this is sort of, this sort of is sort of what happened in that initial meeting. Okay, hold on. I'm just going to take a sip of coffee. Coffee break. Okay. So Kelly basically told me 
that we're going to do things different. We're going to change the world. We're going to change amateur sport. And I was like, whatever. And he's like, then he started to tell me a little bit about his background. So this is how he came to his theories. And he he's an outside the box thinker, let me tell you. He is in, extremely intuitive. He is extremely uh, self-aware. He is very embodied in his body. His attunement, his, his ability to sense feeling and energy is beyond. And this is what, this is the foundation of the work he did. When he was doing his doctorate, he went to, and I might, if I mess up some of these facts, I'm sorry, Kelly, I, I've told the story a bunch of times and this is just how I remember it. So, you know, we're, we're going to take this story as like, um, as like the gist of what happened. So <clears throat> Kelly was looking at weight loss. Okay. He was looking at, you know, everyday athletes not high performance athletes, but everyday people doing athletic things, being high performance in their life. And he had the question, he asked the question, why are gym memberships unsustainable? Okay. So if you're, if you're unaware, gym memberships, um, 80, I think it's 87% of people who start gym memberships in, um, January for new year's don't last the year. They're unsustainable. They do not continue with their membership for a full year. In fact, I think the statistics are even higher now uh, for people that why can't, and, and his question was, why are gym memberships unsustainable? What are people doing? What does it look like? Why are people not committing? And of course, this is a big question. So he decided that he was going to go to Colorado. He was going to go to the worst YMCA in in America, which just happened to be in Colorado. So he goes to this YMCA and he starts to work with the staff, with the management there. And he sits in on some of the initial consultations. So when you go into a gym, who here has gone into a gym? What do they ask you? Like, what's your goals? How much do you want to weigh? They, they measure your measurements. They weigh you. They set you up with a personal trainer. They do some sort of version of that. Okay. And so Kelly witnessed this happening and he decided, he asked them, Hey, can I do your intakes? They were like hundred percent, let's go. So he started to do the intake. So when someone came in with a goal of weight loss or, you know, building strength or building muscle or losing fat or whatever their goal was, he would ask them one question. And that question was, what do you want to feel? Okay, which sounds like a simple question, but you would be surprised. And he was surprised at how many people did not know. They were like, oh, you're supposed to tell me how I'm supposed to feel. You, you have to tell me. And he was like, oh, no. And so over the course of a few months, he created this really sophisticated intake form that had a ton of different boxes of different feelings of different emotions of different ways. So people, because they were so disconnected with even how they felt in the moment going in that this was sort of like a guide, it would help them. And of course, this wasn't a permanent decision. If you said, for example, that you want to feel strong and powerful and then decided um, a few weeks later, or a few months later that you want to feel flexible and limber or something like that, then then you could change it. It wasn't like you're one and done sort of, sort of ideology here. So he presented this form and people started to, you know, tick the boxes and say, this is how I want to feel. This is how I envision myself when I am working out. And what he did with that information is he paired the people up with exercises, with programs, with classes, with things that would that would be available at that YMCA. So for example, if they wanted to feel strong and powerful, he would he would recommend and set them up with personal trainers with like powerlifting classes, with like power pump classes, with things of that nature. And if people wanted to feel light and flowy, he would put them in the swimming pool. If people wanted to feel, you know, fast, he would get them in a spin class, like things like that. So he it wasn't a one size fits all approach, which was completely my indoctrination. It was a let's 
get you into something that's going to make you feel a specific way that you think you want, right? So get you in that feeling. So here's what happened. In one year, he created the most successful intake, the most sustainable membership in the country. So that YMCA, and there's a lot of YMCAs in America, he took that the worst YMCA and turned it into the best YMCA in the country, but with that formula. And he was like, and, and, and like all of a sudden, all the YMCAs are like, what the hell are you doing? How are you doing this? What's going on? And, you know, the people were having fun. They were coming back. They maintained their memberships. They were, the, the classes were full. There was a ton of positive energy. People were like really motivating and accountable with other people. There was new relationships were formed. Like it was this ecosystem of just amazing energy. And so that's, he wrote his thesis on that. He got his doctorate on that, I believe. And it was this incredible shift and all it started with one question. How do you want to feel? How amazing is that? So when we were speaking, when I first met him, he was sort of talking about this philosophy about feeling and how we are disconnected from the feeling. And of course that resonated with me because I had this like, I'm this sort of dictator. <laughs> I don't like that word, but I was kind of like this. I wanted to seek and feel powerful in my position. And what he what he said and how he explained things was was no, I don't want to feel powerful. I want to be empowering. And that resonated deeply within my soul and it birthed this acceptance. It opened the door for me to want to learn from him. And that moment, that was when I turned, I was 30 when I met him, when I, or I was, excuse me, I was 28, turning 29 when I met him and working with him for the first year was incredible. Um, was absolutely incredible. And here's what we did. Okay. This is how we, we, we incorporated it into the performance team. So Ontario, um, freestyle, I ended up, okay, I'm going to sort of skip, skip over a little bit of stuff because <sighs> Ontario freestyle, I had burned a lot of bridges with my, with my attitude, with my approach. And there was not a lot of trust there. However, I really showed up as a leader to the team and Alberta freestyle saw that. And they needed a leader. So they actually recruited me over to Alberta Freestyle. Now, at the time, Alberta was the worst provincial team. They had the worst program. They hadn't put anyone on the national team in years and years and years. They were really suffering. They, you know, couldn't make it into the top 10. No athletes were in the top 10, top 15, even top 20 nationals. And um, they were really looking for a leader and they saw some skills in me. So they recruited me over there. So I left Ontario freestyle at that time. And instead of coming into this brand new team with this ideology that I'm the fucking best thing ever, I started on a clean slate and I started to really embrace the Kelly Dell technique. And this is what we did. So I was still kind of working with him, um, off the books. And of course we're friends. So I was, yeah, he was helping me a lot. <laughs> um, this is what we did. We, we, I taught the kids how to feel their bodies in motion. Now that might not sound super sophisticated, but this is not something that anyone learns in school. They do learn a little bit in gymnastics. That's why I always, 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 always recommend kids um, for 
until they're at least eight years old are in gymnastics because they're learning space and time. They're learning body awareness. At, like, like most adults don't have body awareness. Most adults, adults are walking down the street and they're like, la, 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 la. They have no concept of space and time. If they fall, they fall hard. They don't know how to save themselves, how to like, there is a lot of statistics about that out there. But the kids, the people that go into uh, gymnastics at an early age, they learn these skills um, at a much deeper level. They, their brains are wired differently when you do these on repeat when you're a kid. So most of the kids that I was working with, you know, didn't have those basic fundamental skills um, because again, we don't teach that unless you know, jujitsu is a good one too, like martial arts, martial arts, gymnastics. And I will even say if you're Canadian can skate for kids, can skate's a really good program for space and time as well. Even though they're not, you're not really going inverted. You're not doing somersaults, backwards, forwards, rolls. You are doing some spins and a lot of footwork, um, a lot of stick hand, like handling hand-eye coordination stuff. So I would say the third thing I would recommend is like a can skate program. So anyhow, I would, it was painful to do this. It was really hard. And of course the kids were like, what the hell are we doing? I just want to keep doing like backflips. I'm going to teach me how to do a backflip, teach me how to you know, ski moguls, teach me how to do all these things that they really wanted to do because they had a lot of goals of how they wanted to perform. And I held them back in a way because, and of course this was very, um, uh, how should I put this? There was a lot of resistance from them at the beginning, but that was very short lived. Okay. Change is hard for everyone at the beginning, but once you start to feel the shifts in your life, then you're like, oh shit, this is okay. I am safe. I am getting better. I am doing this. This is amazing. That's exactly what happened to every one of those kids in that first year. So this is what we would do. And I've used this example before. And if you've heard this, then just keep listening because you need to hear it again. <laughs> so we, I would do like an arm, like, okay, so we're a provincial team. All the kids are pretty freaking good at mogul skiing and we would practice into water, the jumps. So in order to qualify a backflip, you can't just like go huck a backflip with your skis. You have to do it in a safe way and you have to do it with progression and it begins in the water. So there's water ramps. So they go off these jumps with their skis and they land in water. Okay. To make it more safe. So if they're trying backflips and they land on their head, they're basically just doing a dive <laughs> into water. So, um, I wanted their arms to be in a very specific place at the end of the jump. I wanted them straight. I wanted their elbows to ears. I wanted their arms locked and their fists clenched facing the sky. Okay. So this is a very, very, very fundamental position at the end of the jump when doing any invert. So anytime kids in moguls are doing any inverts, this is the position that that's most, um, um, effective. It's the, it's a progression to allow you to do a lot of things. So if you're not in that position, you won't have as much control when you're in the air. Let's just put it that way. So the kids were not in that position. They, they already knew how to do backflips. They knew how to do backfulls. They knew how to do cork sevens and all these really cool tricks, but they weren't in the correct position at the end of the jump. So instead of me just trying to fix their awareness in the air to try to get them to land better, I was like, screw this. We're going back to basics and we're working on that end of jump position until they get it. So they would go off the jump. This is how I coached. They would go off the jump. I would video them. They would come out of the water. They would walk up to me and say, and I would ask them one question. And the question was, were your arms straight? Yes or no. And the kids would say, yes, I would show them the video. Of course they weren't straight. They're in a terrible position. And I would say, do it again. And they would do it again. Yes or no arms straight. Yes or no. Here's the video to prove that you're wrong. Let's go. Let's do it again. We did this hundreds of times. It was grueling. It was painstaking. I was like, don't straighten your fucking arms. Like I was so, I had to stay patient. It was an exercise in all, in all sorts of mental skills for me. Okay. I'm like watching this happen. And then, you know, then kids were starting to get it. So like one kid would get it 
and his arms were straight. And I, I would say, are your arms straight? Yes or no? And they would say, yes. They would look at the video, their arms were straight. And in that moment, they now knew what it felt like to have straight arms. Okay. It wasn't a mental concept in their head. It wasn't an idea. Now they are paying attention. They were being mindful. They understand that is what straight arms feels like. And it's like, okay, great. Repeat. So we would repeat that body position. So now every time the kid hits the jump, he is in the right position. He knows what the right position feels like. And you should see the power that they felt like you should see the smiles on their faces when they came out of the water and came up to me because they knew that they were in the right position and they felt it. And I didn't have to tell them anymore. So now I, I like my need, the need for me was getting less and less and less. But anyways, so we would do this with tons of fundamental skills. It was painstaking, painstaking. And some, and I would say 90% of the kids got there or more. Nine out of 10 kids would get there. Uh, and all of a sudden what this did over time was created almost like these machines, right? Cause now they are putting themselves in the right position. And of course in freestyle skiing, there's a lot of variables. There's snow conditions, there's cold, there's wind, there's, you know, a lot of things that can get in the way when you actually are competing and doing things. And we would, so my job as a coach was more tactics. So I started just teaching tactics on how to get through certain areas, how to, where to slow down, how to speed up. Like it was all tactical. It was no longer technical. It wasn't really technical. I mean, of course there are some technical things. I don't want to just say that I wasn't a technical coach anymore, <laughs> but because I was, but my point is, is that those kids when they were training on snow, when they were training in the water, when they were putting their package together to compete for Alberta, they knew when they were doing things right. And they knew when they weren't, when they weren't, and there was no, you're bad for doing it wrong. It was just the acknowledgement. Oh, that wasn't it. Okay. So now what are you going to do to fix it? How does it feel? And I'd get them to describe it in their body so that they could remember so that they could do it again and again and again. Oh my gosh, this strategy, this way of coaching, this way of empowering those kids. And of course we did this off piece as well in their lives. We started a cooking program where all the kids had to cook for the team. We did, we called it dine around. I mean, I think a lot of teams do this. It helps save money. So if we're away for a week, each they the kids would pair up and we would, they would cook the whole team, um, a meal. So they would only have to cook one meal in the week. Okay. And then we would, it was called dine around. And then we would then on Monday, it was this person on Tuesday. It was that person on, you know, and we would all just have these team dinners. We would talk about lots of different things. We would, you know, the, this, this empowerment, this teaching went way beyond the curriculum of technical sport. And two things happened. The first thing that happened was Alberta went from the worst performing team to the best performing team in under three years. It was basically two years. We were pumping kids on the national team. It was like every year, boom, boom, boom. Okay. There were kids from out of province coming into the Alberta team. And remember, this is twenty to $30,000 to be on this team. We had kids from all the provinces like trying to get in and they didn't get the subsidies from Alberta Freestyle. They had to pay an additional seven or $8,000 in team fees to pay for coaching, to pay for all of the things that we supply that are non, that for non-Alberta residents. Okay. And they were still coming on the team. It was crazy. It was awesome because they knew, they knew that we had something special going on. The second thing that was really interesting was I, and I, I sort of alluded to, to this earlier, I sort of backed away a little bit in my approach. So when you, when you look at a freestyle event, I mean, it is the number one or number two selling events at the Olympics. It's really fun to watch the moguls, the bumps and the jumps. It's fun. 
But when they're training, basically what you see is the mogul course. And then at the bottom of the mogul course, this wall of coaches with their cameras, with their whiteboards, with their, you know, dart, uh, what was dart fish, like technology showing like tech teaching technical. And you see athletes come down and coaches like basically spending five to 15 minutes analyzing the run and like coaching them. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how I got really good. That's what happened to me. Okay. There's, this is, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, everyone has their own sort of technique and however you do it. I don't know the ins and outs of every, every coach, but what I started to see with my kids is that they got more training in because they didn't spend very much time with me because they already knew. And I all, all like, sometimes my coaching was just like a nod. Yep like a thumbs up, thumbs down. We could, we started talking to each other with like facial expressions. It was hilarious. It was fucking awesome. These kids that just knew. And I, I, and it's an interesting thing to watch in sport. I mean, I was the only female for years and years at the bottom of some of those elite international events. Uh, it's all these guys that are, and there's no slight to men here, but there's all these guys that are standing there that are trying to be important. They, they need their athletes to need them. I, I saw it every single, every single team has a coach that needs to be needed. And again, that was me until I switched until everything switched. I don't, they, I don't need to be needed. And the kids knew that and they felt their own power and they felt in control and they were empowered. And I, yes, validated them. And yes, I was there for them. And yes, I was the leader for them. And yes, all these things, but we didn't, there was, there was no ego. We took the ego away from the scene. Okay. And it was a really magical time. It was a really magical and powerful experience to watch that. And, and in addition, not only that, so leaving sport, I've been out of, I haven't been coaching the Alberta team for eight years now. I it's, it's, it's crazy to, I can't believe the time has passed. So, so, so much time has passed and I'm looking at those kids, those kids that committed to that team that did amazing things. Some of them, yeah, they moved on to the national program and Every, I think 90%, which is so high, are now extremely successful in their lives. They are doctors, they are physios, they are engineers, they are multi-million dollar entrepreneurs. They are starting families. They are empowered in their life. They are taking literally the bull by the horns and they're freaking making shit happen. They're moving in the direction of how they want to feel of how they want to live their life, of what they desire. And they know, they know that they can get there. They know that they can achieve that feeling that they desire and they're going after it. It is incredible. And I will say this, the athletes that didn't really embrace this style of coaching, it, it, it was, it was partially the kids for sure their inability to get out of, um, a model that they sort of thought was the way. And I understand this because I might've been one of those kids because of how I had grown up such in such a militant. And of course I, there, there were times where you have to be militant. High performance is fucking hard, man. It's high performance. You got to fucking go. Right. But if you're not self-motivated and self-disciplined, yeah, sure. I'll carry you sometimes and I'll get your ass in the gym and I'm going to push you and I'm going to challenge you in ways you've never been challenged. And there's also a huge part that we had brought into this about yourself. It's you. It's your dream. It's not my dream. I'm not doing this for you. You need to do it for you. And so the kids that embraced that model have excelled. The kids that didn't, it was in large part their parents who didn't like that. Their pa the parental influence, okay? The, par the parents thinking that they knew better and they would sort of like um, undermine me in the program. And of course, those kids are struggling now. They're in that life after sport that they don't know who they are. They're in this interesting model 
of I need to be, I need to do what my parents says. I need to be a good boy. I need to be a good girl. I need to, you know, do it this way. I've coached so, so many athletes in that, in this space, tons, dozens, hundreds, where the parents take the lead in the athlete's life. So I will give them things to do. And the parents say, don't do that. Do it this way. I know what's best for you. And there's nothing I can do in those situations. There's nothing. And that's, that's the way life goes. And in those cases, I had to really go with the flow. I just had to keep showing up. I had to keep um, representing. I had to keep pumping kids on the national team. And of course, like it was, it was just such a beautiful system. Most people bought in, but some didn't. And those that didn't, it it's, it was clear. I sort of knew from the beginning who was going to buy in and who wouldn't. And, and, you know, that was their choice. And I had to accept that and embrace that. So where I, where I want to sort of conclude this episode is in the idea of how that experience has really molded and shaped not only my coaching practice today, but also my personal life. And we're going to get into that in the next episode, like the personal life of how, so yes, I was coaching this, but then I started to do it to myself (laughs) Uh, and how that sense of empowerment, most women. So now I work with women. I work with women because we need a team too high performance minded women doing all of the things in the old way in that old militant i have to be the best perfect perfection it needs to look this way or else like this all or nothing mentality women have been conditioned to think that that is the only way and i am over here opening the door to a new way and it's not only how do you want to feel It's working towards that feeling because you'll say, I want to feel X, Y, and Z, but the cost is a fear. The cost of getting that is now a fear. So you balance it out and you go back to the way things always were. And that's what I see. That's what I saw with the athletes. They had to weigh it. It was risky. It was a risky approach. And then all they had to see was the reward. Oh, that guy made the national team. If he can do it, I can do it. Oh my God, that guy's back tuck is so much better. That guy's back layout is so much better. His back full, he's doing cork 10. He's doing double full. His skills are improving out out of this world, right? That's all they needed to see was like this this thing that was brewing. And, And today, in today's world, this is what's brewing right Frickin' now, and it is so powerful. This new way of embracing, of shifting your mentality, of shifting your ideas, of moving into the space of self empowerment, of embodiment. And this is what your new era, the mentorship that's starting January 20, January 23rd, 2024, is all about. And this is what my approach in terms of coaching is, is this is the foundation to my coaching approach because I don't want you to need me. I want to empower you so that you can take your life by the horns and start to make decisions that lead you to the place of how you want to feel is here's the thing. We think we know, we think we know. And then this is, this is like the athletes. They thought their arms were straight. They thought their arms were straight over and over and over and over. And they needed to see that it wasn't. That's not the way it's supposed to feel. That's not the way that's supposed to be. That's not the way. And so when I work with women who want to feel a certain way, when we're dissecting love, when we're working through grief, when we're trying to feel happy and content and powerful in our lives or consistent or motivated or whatever it is. Cause there's so many women coming. They want to feel loved. They want to feel seen. They want to feel appreciated. Well, what does that feel like? And how do you get yourself into that position? 
How do you move from this idea to reality? That is the power of your new area era. That is the power of mentorship where we're together over and over and over again and working through those really challenging, difficult feelings and, and making and decisions for your life. Your new era is not about if you work with me on any capacity, I mean, if we work one-on-one or if you join the men- mentorship or if you do any, cause there's a few options that people can do to work with me. I mean, of course, follow me on social media, listen to this podcast. There's a ton of amazing, excellent resources and advice. Absolutely. I'm going to be doing some free workshops in 2024. Uh, the undoing, if you've come to the undoing, you can hear me start to talk about mindfulness and intuitive awareness, which is the concept. This is the new way to get you. It's like all this prep. And of course, people love to hear it. They love to hear the knowledge. It, The number one thing, and I say this all the time, is people say, you make so much sense because there is a part of you that understands this is the way. There is a part of you that understands the power of mindfulness. But then once you begin your own journey, how do you know if you're there? Most people say, oh, it doesn't work for me. I've heard that multiple times recently. Oh, I've tried mindfulness. And it's like, okay, well, what did you try? What exactly did you do? How did you feel? Where did you go when shit got hard? Where did you put yourself? How often did you do it? What was your repetitions like? What was your consistency? How did you stay accountable? There's a million things that a mentorship of six months can get you in a completely shifted frame of mind to a space where you now become empowered. So all of the things that you've been afraid to say no to or afraid to say yes to, their fear isn't there anymore. Because now you know, now you know who you are. You no longer, like the goal of the, your new era mentorship, one of the goals, there's a few goals, but I guarantee one of the biggest impacts, and this happens time and time again, women who I've worked with over the last six years, time and time and time again, there's testimonials on my website, go to alisaunfilteredcoaching.com of women who are acknowledging that now they are empowered in their life. They see the world from a different lens. They are no longer the victim. And when they are, because that's going to come up, they can acknowledge it. They can put space between it and make new choice. It is this beautiful, wonderful thing. We are learning about women overcoming horrible divorces, women overcoming horrible health conditions, weight loss journeys. We're talking to women who you know, have so much on their plates, busy moms trying to juggle a million things and they can't, they just feel like they're drowning. And we get those people into a place of leadership, into a place of fulfillment, into a place of balance, back into alignment, right? Reevaluating the, the roots the, that are fueling these ideas that are keeping them in hustle that are keeping them in diet culture, you know, that are keeping them in this toxic thought process, right? So if you are someone listening to this, it's like, ooh, this seems really freaking interesting. Let's start chatting. DM me right freaking now. The, the, the mentorship starts in a month, in a month, and we are going hard. I know that the women who are saying yes to this opportunity are in for a wild adventure that with so much support and love was like the feeling of safety that you feel in your body, in your mind, when you shift is on, it's, it's, it's literally the most valuable thing in the world. That's what happened to me. Like when I had that meeting with Kelly, it felt like a warm hug. It felt like, wow, you actually get me. You actually see me. I am ready for this. Like I can do this. This is, this is totally different from everything I've ever learned. And I'm in, I'm going all in. And that's what I did. And we changed sport forever. Okay. So I'm going to leave it there. I can't wait to talk to you guys next week. Yes, the, there's another episode coming out next Wednesday. So follow the show. Give this show a five-star rating. Share it on your social media. Let's get more people um, listening, tuning in, asking questions, sharing. 
We're going to talk all about the personal shifts that I made personally and some client testimonials and just like the reality of this in part three. Does that sound good? Okay, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Okay. I'm over here giving you a big virtual hug because you just finished another episode of the Elise Unfiltered podcast. If you haven't done so yet, I'd love for you to share the love and head over to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify and give the show a five-star rating. I'll give you bonus points for leaving a written review. And if you're looking for more, head over to elisaunfilteredcoaching.com for show notes and all the links to all things Elisa Unfiltered. Have the best day, everyone. Until next time.